0: Today is Ron Friedman. He's back with us. He was on our very, uh, one of our very first episodes, the fifth episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Ron uh, is an award-winning psychologist. He served on the faculty of University of Rochester, uh, Nazareth College, Hobart and William Smith Colleges. He's a consultant. He's an absolutely terrific writer. He was with us uh, originally to talk about his book, The Best Place to Work, which was selected as Inc., Magazine's best book of the year. And he's back with us talking about a new book that I have just gotten called Decoding Greatness. How the best uh, in the world reverse engineer success. Um, I was a little skeptical about this book. I told him I was a little skeptical about it. And I was very uh, pleasantly surprised and, and really thoroughly enjoyed it. Not only is Ron a terrific writer, a uh, really interesting book, great stories but um, was, was like far more than I imagined it even could be uh, very instructional in a way of saying, wow, this really is a strong methodology for figuring out just about anything. So Ron, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it. And they're true.
1: Okay, let's jump in. Why did you write this book? So My first book, The Best Place to Work, was about taking all of the science, over a thousand academic uh, studies, translating them into plain English, so that regardless of whether you're a CEO or just someone entering the workplace for the first time, you had access to the best science on creating a great workplace and elevating your performance at work. But there was something missing from that book. And what was missing is that even within the best workplaces, there's a range of performance levels. Some people are top performers, others are not. And I was curious about What is it that top performers do differently? And so I delved into the biographies of a lot of high achieving folks. And what I discovered was surprising. And that is that the stories that we've been told about their success are wrong. Uh, There are two big stories. The first story is that greatness comes from talent. The idea that we're all born with certain inner strengths and that the key to finding your greatness is just finding the right field. The second story is that greatness comes from practice, the 10,000 hours, practice, practice, practice. If you have the appetite for doing a lot of hard work and the right uh, modality of of doing that practice, eventually you will succeed. But there's a third story. And the third story is one that is not often told, yet it is the path by which so many top performers, whether they be in athletics, artists, entrepreneurs or inventors have been using for generations. And that story is the story of reverse engineering. And reverse engineering simply means finding the best in the field and then figuring out how they did it, working backwards and by using extraordinary examples and identifying what makes them unique.
0: Now, is that really a third or is that an amplifier? Meaning you, that doesn't replace hard work and talent, but maybe it allows you to focus the hard work and the talent in a way, like gives structure to the hard work and the talent.
1: I appreciate that point. And it is uh, well taken. So there is no question that if you are born with certain talents, like uh, LeBron James or Simone Biles, I'm not gonna be able to replace that. Talent matters. By the same token, if you want to devote uh, your career to figuring out your craft and and mastering your field, that's going to help. But the idea that talent and practice are the only paths to success. That's that's where I take issue because, and I think that that those narratives have convinced people that, you know what? Greatness is not for me. That's for someone else, for, for the elite. It's for people who are born with it or people who are willing to work at it for 10 years. I don't have that time. So therefore I should just settle for my job. I should just settle for working for the weekend. And I want to challenge people to say, no, there's a system that you can apply that will actually accelerate your success and help you achieve those dreams that you've
0: Abandoned. That's great. That's great. What do you uh, What do you mean by decoding? You talk about reverse engineering. Okay, so reverse engineering, as I mentioned, is all about
1: taking outstanding examples and then working backwards. There are a whole host of techniques that I cover for reverse engineering. And it really depends on what field you're in. So for example, if you are a nonfiction writer or an article writer, one of the things you might uh, already do, I don't know if you do this, Peter, I do this, is you get a nonfiction book. What's the first thing you look at? You look at the end notes. You look at the section in the back that tells you where they got their sources because you don't even have to read the book because once you know what goes into it, you kind of know where the thinking goes. And it's, it's kind of a fun activity actually is to go to the uh notes at the end and then see if you
0: can predict where it's going and oftentimes it's wrong you the author, you know, it it's read. interesting because i don't even put endnotes in my book you and i you know you're a beautiful writer and you base a lot of your stuff on in-depth research and you have a lot of endnotes uh, uh to your books i i i don't even really put endnotes in my books you know so, i'll tell you i just did But a, i think um, it's a great I, I think it's i think looking at the endnotes is a great methodology right. for saying what are the sources that they leverage
1: it's a an example of uh as i describe it of, of like eating in a fancy restaurant and then raiding the chef's pantry to see what went into that dish right um, within photography photographers will often look at um you know we as as amateurs will look at the object in the, in a photo a, a trained photographer will look at the shadows they'll look at the reflections in the eyes of the subject because that all of that gives them clues about uh, the light source, the time of day, the aperture, all kinds of things that go into creating amazing photographs. Chefs will often order fancy dishes to go and spread the uh, sauces along a white plate. And sometimes there's a magnifying glass involved to determine what went into there. Those are obviously very specific examples for those specific fields. But if you are someone who is a content creator, if you write memos, if you produce Uh, decks, presentation decks, there are methodologies in decoding greatness that will show you how to do it better. And we can get into them now. What do you mean by greatness? Greatness is really defined by the individual. And that's really critical to appreciate. It's top performance within your field, whatever that field is, as you identify it. Because, And the reason I say it's personalized is because uh, I, I truly believe that just because someone else can do something and that helps them achieve outstanding results, if it doesn't register with you as something that's uh, a a level of greatness that you aspire to, then reproducing it isn't going to yield good results. It's all about what you find really uh, moving and inspiring that you wish you could achieve, decoding that and figuring out how it was done so that you can reproduce it or maybe even do it
0: better. Okay, so now I wanna challenge you with a couple of my skeptical uh, perceptions at the very, very beginning of this which is, um, you know, are we really decoding greatness or are we in effect decoding a, the underlying structure to greatness, which is really sort of decoding mediocrity to some degree, meaning, meaning, can I, if I go into that pantry at per se, you know, which is one of the top or 11 Madison park, like top restaurants in New York, I'm going to look at everything that's in that pantry and I'm not going to be able to cook what they cook. And like, and and when i think about structures and rules and even if i decode the rules i'm listening to neil gaiman's i want to write fiction which we're going to come back to in this podcast but i'm 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 listening to neil gaiman and and he's you know creating a whole bunch of like here are the things that i do that's not, i could i could he's decoding it for me i can look at it and i'm not going to become a neil gaiman level writer because that's so personal and individualistic i could follow the rules And then isn't greatness when you understand the rules and then you break them in certain ways that are sort of inspiring and unusual and and put you above and beyond anything else that's been done? Oh my God, how many, how much time you got here, Peter? (laughs) These are are all three questions. This is just the short part at the beginning where we can like move through the skepticism.
1: (laughs) Okay, there's a lot here to unpack and I'm gonna try to hit on all of these points. But one thing, the first thing I'll say is coming back to my previous point about figuring out the models that you wanna better understand. And I, I really do believe that it has to do with what you consider to be the elite and then working backwards from those examples. And so one of the strategies that I offer people as kind of point one for reverse engineering is to become a collector. And by that, I mean, when you encounter an email that is exceptionally well-written save it, put it in a Google doc. Uh, You can do the same for a presentation deck. You can do the same for images or photography that really is exceptional. And by creating a collection, and by the way, you find through the histories of a lot of top performers like Ernest Hemingway, Julia Childs, uh, Andy Warhol, they were collectors first. They did not produce art. They uh, collected it first. And what that, having a collection is like having something that is like a private museum where you can go and visit it and be inspired, figure out what they're doing that's differently by comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary and just have a place that
0: allows, that reminds you to think big. So I think it was, by the way, I think it was in a, a Kurt Vonnegut, and you talk about Kurt Vonnegut in the book, and I think there was a Kurt Vonnegut character, if I'm remembering correctly where it was abstract expressionist, And one of the characters said to the abstract expressionist artist, how do you know, like, look at these paintings. I mean, it's like art splashed on canvas. How do you know a good one from a bad one? And his answer was, look at a million paintings. And when you get to the million and one, you'll know whether it was good or not. <laughs> right. Well, part of it is numbers
1: going through a lot of examples. Right. and that's the value of having that museum is once you have 10 well-written emails that you can revert back to, the next time you need to write an exceptional email, you can start looking for patterns. What do those 10 have in common that is different from a non-well-written email. Uh, And so it's the comparison that enables you to illuminate the underlying patterns and then reproduce those patterns. In the second half of the book, I talk about bridging the gap between your vision. In other words, the formula you've decoded Right uh, against, uh, by, by raising your your ability to execute against that vision, and so it's not just about identifying the hidden patterns, but it's also about elevating your skill level so that you can reproduce them in a way that um it, it, it get, that does it, does it justice. I think I've
0: answered the three parts. Yeah, I guess my and let me let me elaborate on my question of mediocrity, which yeah. is, and you talk about this in the book around Ken Robinson and like here's here's a great te- Ted talk reverse engineered. And this is what you do all the way down to the word count. Like this is the number of words, if I'm remembering correctly, it's 1350, like, you know, I don't know if that's right, but, but whatever it is, like, here's the number of words, here's what you do at minute two, here's what you do at minute five. And once you've replicated that 20 times, once you look at, or once you look at hundred Ted talks with that exact format and that exact structure, Does't that then become the average and a little less interesting and you're looking for someone to break out yes and
1: in uh, the next chapter I talk about the problem with that formulation and that is that number one you are not Ken Robinson so the chances of you executing very well on his formula is low because he's very funny and or, or, and he has a lot of um, prestige associated with his achievements that allows him you know one of the Just to give away some of the insights in that reverse engineered example, Ken Robinson in the number one TED talk of all time tells a grand total of one fact in his entire talk. This is the number one TED talk of all time, one persuasive fact. Now, if I was creating a TED talk from scratch, I would probably assume I need to just fill it to the brim with persuasive facts in order to convince people of my point. He doesn't. And he's able to get away with it because of his standing. So right. my point is, is that you're not going to be able to reproduce his work because it's probably not going to have the same effect as he did. It's not going to be authentic to you. But even to, even 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 more importantly is audience expectations shift the mo- more commonly a formula is used. And so- I love that th- point. Yeah. So it's really critical to not just uh, replicate the underlying formula, but to evolve it. And in the book, in Decoding Greatness, I talk about, I give you six uh, recipes for evolving formulas that you've reverse engineered, so that you're not just replicating someone else's work, but actually producing something that is novel and
0: unique. That that is what I think is the most essential. And I want to jump there. I might ask ask one other question beforehand, but but I want to I want to jump there because, and I want to test a characterization with you. And you may not like this, um, or you might like it. I don't know. Um, but as I, I think, the biggest problem people face is not greatness is not getting to greatness i think the biggest problem people face is getting started is like oh my god i've got a ted talk where do i go how do i create this or how do i or for me like i want to write fiction like where do i go with it i'm not i'm not at the point of going i'm really really good at fiction and now i'm going to get great at it i'm at the point of going I don't even know how to write fiction and how to start. And I and this wouldn't have been a fancy title, but I think the greatest value of this book and and actually the challenge that most people face is is to say like how do I go from I don't know to I can actually accomplish this thing in a pretty decent way. And I think the challenge of going from like really, really good to great is to say, I've already done this a bunch of times. I've got this under my belt. Now, how do I innovate? How do I break the mold? How do I do things that no one else has ever done now that I'm solid in the structure of how one does this so that I can then get to that level of greatness? You're you're, you're bringing up some great points i really appreciate it and
1: i think that just for clarity what i mean by decoding greatness is isn't uh I mean, it is to a certain degree, but it's not like here's your roadmap to achieving greatness. Rather, it's when you find something great, here's a roadmap to understanding the blueprint for what made it great. And having that blueprint is going to be the impetus to you having the courage to do the thing that you're so eager to achieve. So here we're unlocking patterns. We're we're, we're translating uh, completed works into formulas so that we give ourselves the, the roadmap for s- starting.
0: Right. I, I love that. And I think that is, you know, even a hundred times more valuable than trying to figure out what makes somebody like, you know, the best of the best. And, and, uh, and it's funny because it reminded me, I was coaching the CEO of United Media and I asked him, um how can you tell like united media is a licensing organization they own the snoopy license and they own you know like it's a licensing organization they license properties and put them out there uh comics and things and i said how can you tell a runaway success and and in in response to that he gave me the book uh fooled by randomness and he said look it's my job to find like viral hits right it's my job to find far side it was I coached him a while ago, and things like that, and he said, but the answer is it's throwing spaghetti against a wall. I don't know what's going to go viral. if everybody knew if we knew really what would make a viral video, we'd all be making viral videos and I made an amazing video of my family. It was very funny and very good, and it got 30,000 views, but it wasn't viral like it didn't you know like you know it didn't make me famous who are you quoting him? Well, I, I'm everything up until the I made the video of my family was quoting him. Though okay. the the part where I said I well, made. Now, this really now I need to see the video. <laughs> great video. It was early in the pandemic, but it but it didn't. Uh, but you know, but I, I think you can't. And and to your point with changing uh, attitudes and changing desires and wants, right. it's hard to get to that viral. But. But I think so much more valuable is what you offered in this book, which yeah. is we could look at what really, really great people do and create a base of structure that allows us to then take off from there. Yeah,
1: and I just want to just to to, the, to, the, to 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 loop back to your point about viral versus non-viral. I think there's a real distinction that we should be careful not to conflate for example, the the quality of a book with the sales of a book. Those are two different things. And the same is true for the quality of the video and the amount of views it garners. And, you know, we've all seen movies that are blockbuster sensations. We don't understand how or why. So I just think commercial success should not be our metric for quality work. And which is why I urge people to consider what they view as great work and then work on deconstructing that rather than looking at what has sold the most, because there's so many different factors that go into that, that have nothing to do with the
0: quality of the work. I think that's great. And you make that point about Twilight. Like there's so many clones of Twilight that didn't catch on because readers expectations had shifted or maybe their expectations were fulfilled by twilight and they didn't need five other twilights exactly and, right and that's and I sort of a united media question they the, the also talk about uh, the you know the netflix show what if there's
1: a netflix show that you watch the first episode's amazing by the end of the season you can't even stand to watch it anymore because it seems so predictable it's not because the show's gotten worse it's because your brain has picked up on what the pattern is through right. implicit learning and so it's really crucial to not just replicate but to evolve
0: Okay, great. Now let's go into some of the tactics of, of decoding greatness that I love. So um, uh, let's go to the Don Draper idea, derivative with a twist.
1: Yeah. So uh Don Draper, for anybody who who has has not seen Mad Men, Don Draper is the central character. He is the creative director of Sterling Cooper, and he's kind of a just a genius when it comes to obviously they, they wrote this. 50 years later, so they can make him seem like a genius, because now he knows all of the things that are going to work within uh, within marketing. But one of his insights is that pe- what people want is they want derivative with a twist. And I remember like getting chills watching that like 10 years ago, like, oh, I got a cat. Remember I talked about starting a collection that went right into the collection of lines. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Don Draper, he talks about derivative with a twist. And as it turns out, there's research to back this up. And what the research shows is that if you give people something that is 100% original, that is so far afield from anything they've seen before, they will reject it. And not only will they reject it, but if you're a leader and you're suggesting the creative idea, they will view you as a weaker leader. And it's because as a species, we are distrustful of the new. We base our predictions on what has worked in the past. That's very sad when it comes to organizational leadership because it means that we're uh, promoting people who say safe, safe things, which is, you know, this has value to a point, but certainly not every industry and every position. Um, and so the point is about derivative of the twist is that what gets the highest acceptance rate are um, the, the works that essentially replicate what has been done in the past but offer a modest degree of novelty and that's really vi- valuable in, it's a really valuable insight because what it suggests is when we're creating something we sh- when we put all that pressure on ourselves to be completely original turns out that pressure is not only unnecessary it's actually counterproductive because even if you achieve that 100 novelty chances are you're going to fail or be perceived as a weaker leader
0: well and also audiences certainly or whoever you're presenting your work to they are, they are looking to fulfill their expectations with a twist. If I read a cowboy or whatever mystery novel, there are certain elements to the structure of a mystery novel I'm looking for, and I'm looking to be surprised. But you know, if you break all of the elements, then it's no longer a mystery novel. Like it's no longer fits that, that uh, form. And, and then I'm disappointed. And I will say, though, that one of the paths, just to preview ahead to some of the
1: tactics, one of the paths to finding your twist is finding something that works in a different field and importing it into your field. So I give you the that. example of the Barack Obama story. So mm-hmm. Barack Obama, when he first ran for office, got trounced. He lost by a, a, a huge margin of more than two to one. And the problem if you can believe it, was that he was a terrible speaker. He was a, he had been a law school professor. And so he was used to um, just preaching to people about what they needed to do. And, and voters didn't appreciate that. And they let him know at the, at the ballot box. And so uh, for a while, he considered leaving politics. Then he went into the, the, uh, the Chicago churches and noticed what, ser- what pastors were doing in their sermons. And all of a sudden, his speaking style evolved suddenly he was telling stories, he was modulating his tone, he was using repetition. And it was by importing something that was working in churches into politics that enabled him to uh, accelerate his career. And so what I think that story is such a powerful illustration of is that it, what, he didn't find his talent, he didn't practice for 10 years, He found an element that was working in a different field, imported it into his own. And it was through that process of taking what we find to be great in other fields and bringing it into our own field. That's how we achieve greatness.
0: I love that. And I'll tell you a short story related to that, which is I was, I've I've been, I'm a master certified coach with ICF and I have been for since the uh, 90s, since the early nineties. And, and so when I was re-upping, I, that you have to do some continuing education and I did all this continuing education and they sent me a letter back saying we can't accept any of your continuing education it's not in the it's it's not certified as coach training. And I wrote them a letter back and I said look if if you um like uh, maybe I'm not a master certified coach anymore like maybe I I won't I won't get certified but I want to tell you that at this point in my career having you know written five books contributed to 15 others you know, taught coaching programs. I'm not looking to learn more about coaching from coaching. I'm looking to more learn more about coaching from somatic therapy. And I'm looking to learn more about it from fiction and I'm looking to learn, and I'm gonna apply it. And if we want coaching to grow, then we have to look for continuing education at a mastery level from all of these other areas and then apply them to coaching. And, and what was the response you um, They sent me an email and it was a long, long letter and then they sent me an email back saying, congratulations, you have been recertified as a master." coach. <laughs> <My gosh. laughs> <That's laughs> they didn't answer the letter, but they just gave me my certification. <laughs> um, uh, how do you talk to experts? I love that piece.
1: Say we better certify this guy or otherwise he's going to write us another letter.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. We're the last thing we did in another letter. How do you talk yeah. to experts? Talking to experts.
1: So there's a chapter in the book on how you reverse engineer the work of someone whose expertise you wish to understand. And it starts with a story of Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando put out in 2001, a acting seminar. And it was, uh, he invited all of, all of the major stars in Hollywood. He invited a director. They were going to produce this into a documentary that would be shown at all kinds of uh, acting schools. And- um, Spoiler alert, it was a disaster. Uh, Brando was a terrible instructor. He thought that it would be a wise idea to invite homeless people off the street and teach them how to act. Um, He would have his students act out scenes. He would bark out uh, lies, lies in the middle of it. He would ask them to get naked in front of each other. It was just uh, a circus. And there was a walkout. Anyway, the point of the story is, is that we naturally assume that experts know what their secrets are, and that they'll be able to explain it to us if we just ask. But the truth is, because of the curse of knowledge, uh, and just to define that term, if, for those who haven't heard it before, the curse of knowledge is um, what we know from research is the case that people who, when we when we have certain information, it, it's impossible for us to imagine not knowing that information. So. If you have expertise in coaching, for example, to explain to someone who's never coached before would be difficult because certain elements of what goes into coaching has been automated for you. Right. And so what the research shows us is that over 70% of the insights that go into expertise somehow go missing when an expert explains what they do. Right. And so one of the things that I I, I talk about in the chapter is how do you actually communicate with an expert to get them to open up and share with you what's most important. So I have a list of about 10 questions that you can ask. And what they focus on really is channeling what focus group moderators do really well in terms of getting people to open up and share um, their secrets in a very short period of time. And one of them, just to to give you a a brief synopsis, one of them is... uh, starting off with a mindset of naive curiosity. And so one of the things that um, we've, you know, a a saying you may have heard, which is uh, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I love that saying because it suggests that if you're not learning from other people, then you're probably stagnating. And focus group moderators are never the smartest person in the room. They're always trying to be naively curious. And it's because they realize that the last thing you want to do when you're trying to get somebody else to open up is show that you know more than them. And so just swallowing your ego a little bit, asking questions, prioritizing some of the easier questions first, and then focusing the expert on discoveries they made along the way and asking them if they were to start today, what would they do differently? Those types of questions get them to really compare
0: their, what they anticipated with what they actually experienced. I wonder also whether it would be helpful to um, to bring them the problem that you're facing and let them solve it. I, I, I always wake up with the intention of writing in the morning and by afternoon I realize I've never done it. Have you faced that and what do you do with that? So that they're 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 not having to think fig- they haven't really thought about that for 20 years. But when you ask them that question, it brings them to their solve. That's a great addition. That's a great addition.
1: And uh, one of the things that I think is really critical is I think a lot of people assume that the expert uh, doesn't have time for them. And I think that in this burgeoning world of podcasts and blogs, there's an opportunity to speak with anyone. Really, there's an opportunity to speak with anyone. Uh, And and to to that point, there's a story about Judd Apatow and how he developed his expertise. And he was a 15-year-old high school student and uh, he recognized that some of the school's musical stations were able to get some re- surprisingly impressive bands to do interviews with them. So as a 15-year-old, he convinces the station to give him his own show. He uses it to interview Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, just the who's who of the comedy scene about everything from how they broke in, how they got their agent, how they got to the level that they're at. How do you structure a joke? By the end of high school, he's got a blueprint for becoming a comedian. And here we are today. He's probably the best known comedy mind in Hollywood.
0: You know, it's funny because it reminds me of a story that Dan Heath told me. Uh, I don't know if you know Dan Heath, but Dan Heath and Chip Heath, who've written a bunch of books. And, and they uh, Dan was telling me that he was giving a speech at some point and some kid came up to him and was like asking him all these questions. And he didn't really have a lot of time, but he like, you know, just kept at it and said, just give me 10 minutes of your time. And, and was asking him all this stuff about like how he got to where he was and what he did and et cetera. And it turned out that kid was Tim Ferriss. And it was like, yeah, no. And it was two story. And it was the same stuff. Like, it's exactly what you're saying about Judd Apatow. And, and I want to, um, I want to make, I, I just heard something in your language that I want to, I want to point out because I think it's important. The word, the language you used is how Judd Apatow developed his expertise. And I think one of the important things about this book and about, you know, me reading it and is, Um, it's sort of like we are always developing our expertise. Like there's no point at which we stop. There's no point at which I've now developed my expertise and now I could go produce. I think part of what greatness is, is you never stop decoding. You never stop developing your expertise and your expertise continues to grow and you keep looking for ways in which you can kind of fine tune it
1: hundred percent. And it is more critical now than it's ever been before. If you, you know, it used to be that staying on top of the latest trends was for go-getters. Now it's a basic requirement for staying relevant. So regardless right. of what, if you're not learning, you're stagnating. And, you know, I had uh, a, uh, an interviewer ask me, what's the last thing you reverse engineered? I reverse engineer things all the time. It's a mindset. Like I'm reverse engineering the way you're asking these questions right now. Anytime I enjoy (laughs) anything, I'm trying to figure out how do they create that and how do I apply that to the thing I'm working on? And that's really what I'm trying to encourage people to do is that learning doesn't require sitting down with a book. It doesn't require taking a course. It's an approach to
0: how you experience life. I love it, Ron. All right. Let's apply this to me. I want to get some free coaching. Um, I, I really want to write fiction. I've just made a commitment, which I'm a little scared to actually, I didn't realize I was going to do this. But now that I started, I made a commitment. I'm going to write a book in the a fiction book in the next 100 days. So it's going to be a, 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 you know, a, a bad first draft. My intention is not to make it good. My intention is to write from start to finish a bad draft of a fiction book. Um, How do I go about decoding? Like, what what advice would you give me to help me, you know, get to a place where I have some structure to be able to to achieve that objective?
1: So I, I would point you to the advice of Kurt Vonnegut. I just feel like this is such useful advice. So Kurt Vonnegut, what he did was he translated famous stories into pictures. And what I mean by that is he would graph out on, um, you know, just a, a graph from, from on, the, on the x-axis he would have from beginning to end, and on the y-axis, the protagonist's fortune. Meaning, how are things going for the protagonist? Are things right. going well? Things going poorly? And by the end, he'd have a picture. And what he discovered is that if you do this for all the world's stories, you have basically six uh, arcs that, that total. Of all the books, you know, all the movies on Netflix, Vatican says, don't don't bother watching them. There are six stories. And to illustrate this point, you could just see if you compare Annie to, to Cinderella, they're basically the same story. And and it, they both start off with things going very poorly for the protagonist. Annie's an orphan. Cinderella's being abused by her sister, stepsister and stepmother. Then something good happens. Annie gets adopted. Uh, Cinderella goes to the ball. Then something bad happens. The clock strikes midnight. Annie's uh, kidnapped by people pretending to be her parents, and then finally, the climax, they live happily ever after, Cinderella goes to live with Prince Charming, Annie goes back to Daddy Warbucks, and everything is great. So they're basically the same story, we've, no, we've just kind of uh, forgotten that, because we're so tied into the emotional arc. And so what I would ask you to do, Peter, is to identify the works that you have found really impactful, just choose five to ten movies or books, and do this exercise with them, and see if you can develop figure out what that pattern is that really moves you. And then when, as you're writing you're out, I don't know if you're planning to outline or if you're planning to just I'm gonna, go, I'm, No, I'm planning to outline. Map it out, see what's happening to your protagonist. And I think that will force you to zoom out and compare your work against the greats. It doesn't mean you need to replicate their work but at least it gives you direction about what's happening. Because what happens when we write is we're so close to, we're so close to the material. We're trying to get the right phrasing. We're trying to be clever and we forget does the story have momentum? Are, are people going to be attached to this? And I, I would just encourage you to stay on that level, on the higher mm-hmm. plane, before dialing in your language. Don't waste your energy doing that just yet. Make
0: sure you got the plot right. What would you, what's a what piece of advice you would, thank you very much for that. I'm going to do that. Um, a piece of advice you would give leaders and managers to help, for them to help people get better? Well, first of all, I would say as a leader, there's always opportunities
1: for growing by identifying Uh, identifying works that you find impactful. And so uh, in in the case of, you know, we talked earlier about presentation decks and speeches and emails, starting a collection, comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary to figure out what it is that you can learn from those examples that have moved you in order to improve your performance. In terms of um, improving others' performance, what I would What I would encourage you to do is to model some of that behavior and and share your learnings with your team, because what it does is it illustrates, obviously, a new new approach that that they probably haven't heard of, but more importantly, it demonstrates your commitment to learning and curiosity. And I I, I truly do believe that if you see your leader being inquisitive and trying to get better, that sends a, a message that it has to be in line with a culture of
0: growth and development. I love it, Ron. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. His book is Decoding Greatness: How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Decoding Greatness. It's a terrific book. It's not only educational, and and you know you could tell from this conversation, it's packed with really good instructional advice, but it's also just a great read. You are a terrific writer, uh, Ron. And it was you know I read it very quickly. And, and it was really fun to read and I got a bunch out of it. So thank you for writing it. And thank you so much for coming on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. My
1: pleasure. Thanks for reading the book. And I, I'm so glad it was enjoyable. It means a ton. You know, you, you can talk, talk to me all day about the research and about the tips, but the fact that you enjoyed reading it, that's all I care about.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.